Well, last week we were in Nehemiah chapter 1, and we were looking at the uh, brokenness in Jerusalem, the, of course, physical brokenness of the city that also represented the spiritual brokenness in God's people, and then Nehemiah's brokenness over the brokenness, uh, how greatly it disturbed him to see the condition the people were in. Chuck Swindoll once said, Nehemiah was called to build the wall, but first he had to weep over its ruins, and I think that's certainly true uh, for all of us today as well. There's a lot of brokenness in our world, and we've got to take a good look at the devastation and feel the burden. Nehemiah was willing uh, to be burdened, willing for God to put the people on his heart. He was willing to get his hands dirty. He was willing to give up personal comfort. He was in a great position there as, as cupbearer, as an advisor to the king, but he was willing to give up all of that to bring restoration to the brokenness. And just like Nehemiah, we are called personally to be involved with those who are broken both physically and spiritually. If you weren't here last week, we touched briefly on the fact that our vision is the body of Christ is to be more proactive and more um, strategic in getting the gospel out to people and communities around us where there is a lot of brokenness. And as we are in the process of continuing to refine the, the, the vision God has given us of being more effective in central Arkansas, we are praying, uh, we are seeking guidance and, and clarity from God on how we're to move forward. Now, the key for Nehemiah, the key to what happened in the book of Nehemiah, to how God used him to bring restoration and brokenness is in chapter 1 and verse 4. Nehemiah hears the report, and then he says, As soon as I heard these words, and sat, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And so we concluded our time last week together, calling on the church body to come together in fasting and prayer as we seek the Lord's guidance for our mission and for our ministry, and as we prepare ourselves both individually and corporately for what he's calling us to do. Now, if you weren't here last week, there is a uh, book available. It gives some basic instruction on fasting. There are no particular um, guidelines on this fast, like there were the Daniel fast. It's just deciding what I'm going to give up um, and sacrifice to the Lord and use that time to seek him. But there's some basic instructions. There are also 40 days of devotions that we are reading together is the body of Christ. So if you weren't here last week, that book is available on the countertops in the lobby. It's also available online. I would be happy to tell you um, how to get that online, but if you were here last week, you know that I suggested that if you're not tech savvy, don't have internet, shoot me an email. Did y'all catch that last week? Yeah, I'm not too bright either, so I can't tell you how to get it online, but you can find a staff member who can tell you that. Well, why are we, why are we calling the church to a fast? Obviously, we've got the, the picture here in Nehemiah, but also, um, and there are other examples in Scripture. In Acts 13, when the church at Antioch was fasting and praying, they were seeking the leadership of the Holy Spirit. They were seeking direction from the Lord for their mission. They were asking the question we're asking very simply, where do we go from here? What do you have for us, Lord? What are, what are you calling us to? And that's the questions we have, and that's why we were calling the church to prayer and fasting. Those believers in Antioch had hearts that were hungry to hear from and follow the Lord. And, and they demonstrated their spiritual hunger by being in a state of physical hunger. It's as if they were saying, God, we, we want to know you and hear from you more than we even want to eat, more than even our daily sustenance. God, we want to know and hear from you. And I would say for us as a body, we certainly want to be a part of what God is doing in this place. And, and I mentioned last week, and I want to hit on it again, God evidently is doing some stirring in our body. 
The, the two baptisms we saw this morning are part of an effect that started at Easter of people hearing the testimony of others and saying, that's me. In fact, last Sunday morning after our service, and by the way, let me, let me say this. Some of you have been concerned that we don't do invitations the way we did pre-COVID, um, but there's still an invitation at the end of every service. You'll hear me say it. At the end of every service, I'm down here. There are pastors in the lobby that you can easily find. We always want you to have opportunity to respond. Last Sunday morning, as I stood down here, one of our ladies came and said, that's me. I need to trust Christ, and I need to follow Christ in baptism. While I was down here, one of our other pastors was in the lobby, and one of our men, in fact, I got his permission to say, Philip Rye, Philip's out of town today, but Philip's been playing. How long has Philip been in this orchestra? 20 years? Been a part of our body for many, many years. And Philip Rye came and found another staff member, Pastor Jason, and said, that's me. I'll tell you what happened after that. Philip then went to his Sunday school class and shared his testimony. That Sunday school class, the leaders had felt like they were kind of waning a little bit in their spiritual commitment. Philip went in and shared his testimony with the class. They got talking about what I shared with you last week about our students going out on their own of their own accord and trying to initiate gospel conversations. And they began to evaluate their class and say, you know, we don't have the commitment level. We don't have the serving level we need to have. And so God is stirring in that group and causing some revival to take place. Oh, I'm not done yet. Philip went home and Sunday afternoon was talking to his daughter, Savannah. Philip wanted to be baptized on August 7th because after that, Savannah will be leaving to go to college. He shared that with her. She gave him a passing, that's great, and immediately began to unpack the things that she'd been going through since Easter Sunday and wondering if she'd made a true commitment to Christ as a child. She came in Thursday and spoke with Tara Ledford, our, our minister to girls in, in our student ministry, and Savannah will be baptized with Philip on August 7th because they both come to saving faith in Christ. I'm going to tell you what. All of these folks who've been struggling for weeks would tell you it ain't worth the battle. Give it up. And if you're struggling with your salvation or if you, like these two, have been saved in the past but never been baptized and you're worried about what people think, let me tell you, around here right now is a great time to get it straight now because all people are going to think is glory to God, God is working, God is moving. If that's you, don't miss out. Now is the time and there's no better time to get that straightened out. And there are many other examples I could give you, the Lord working among us. I've gotten a lot of emails this week of what God is speaking about. We do want to hear from you. Um, if you go to the website, gsfpc.org slash 40 days, there's a button there you can push and tell us what God is doing in your life. All right. Boy, I could stop right there. Nehemiah. If you haven't opened your copy yet of God's Word to Nehemiah, we're going to jump back into Nehemiah. Last week in chapter 1, we read Nehemiah's words as he, he kind of poured out himself in prayer before the Lord. He was confessing the sin of his people, uh, asking God to hear and bless his people as they returned to him in obedience. And if you've read through, or if you remember our study through Nehemiah back in 2019, you know that prayer was the key to everything that was accomplished. And for us as well, that's the key to what God is going to be able to do in us and through us. So I want to get to chapter 3 this morning to look at the response of the people. But first, let me walk you quickly through chapter 2 to make sure we're all up to speed on the story if it's been a while since you have looked at Nehemiah. After Nehemiah has fasted and prayed, he then approaches the king. He's, remember, he's in captivity. 
He is a servant to Artaxerxes. Yes, it's a great position of influence, but he's still a servant. And it was a pretty dangerous thing for a servant to approach a king. The king could call for a servant, but you didn't just walk in and approach the king. But, but God's given Nehemiah this bold vision. And to go along with the vision, he's given him a very courageous spirit. So he goes to the king and he explains the situation in his homeland and he asks for permission to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city, rebuild the walls around the city. And the king's response was positive enough that Nehemiah was infused with even more courage. He didn't just ask to go back and rebuild the city. He asked for letters of passage from the king. He asked for supplies, for building supplies. And the king granted all of those things and something Nehemiah didn't even ask for, King Artaxerxes gave him a military escort to make sure he'd have no trouble going back to Jerusalem. And by the way, just a reminder, this is true then, this is true now, that, that then Artaxerxes was the most powerful king in the Middle East, but he was still subject to God. And every ruler, every king, every authority is still today subject to God. Don't be in despair when you see some of the ridiculous things that authorities are doing. God's got it. He's not caught by surprise. King Artaxerxes, who's giving Nehemiah permission and provision to go rebuild the wall, is the same king who had previously stopped the rebuilding. You see, before Nehemiah went to Jerusalem, there was a group that was there, and they were beginning to rebuild, but enemies of God's people got word to Artaxerxes, said, look, if you let them rebuild the city, they're going to rebel. If you let them rebuild the city, they're going to stop paying taxes to you. And so he had issued, this same king had issued a decree to stop all the building, to stop all the progress. But God changes the course of affairs that this king has set in motion, because Every king is subject to the king. God is sovereign. His ways and his plans are not going to be thwarted. Chapter 2, look with me at verses 11 and 12. So Nehemiah has gone to the king. He's gotten permission to go. Verse 11 of chapter 2, so I went to Jerusalem and I was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. What's happening here? Nehemiah is still working through the vision and, and the plan, but he begins to pull in a few others. Those who are going to do the work and those who are going to help lead the work need to see and understand the devastation and the need. They've got to, they've got to take a close look at it. Now skip down to verses 17 and 18 of chapter 2. He's out during the night. Looking at the city, verse 17, chapter 2, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Now, that brings us to the key I want us to see in chapter 3. Nehemiah cannot accomplish this task alone. A handful of leaders can't accomplish the task. What's going to happen is everyone is going to have to do their part. And the problem Nehemiah is going to encounter is that some of the people were discouraged. They had run into obstacles before. That's why Nehemiah recounted for them 
what God had done in giving him favor with the king, the same king that they knew had previously stopped the work and left them in brokenness. Look at verse 18. He says, so they strengthen their hands for the good work. Now, that's not referring to hand exercises you might do. That's not about physical strengthening. What he's saying is they encouraged each other. They were in this together. They looked around, unlike the spies that went in to spy on the land, they looked around at each other and said, yes, we, we can do this because God is with us and God is for us. And so they were encouraged to do the work. But if you look at verse 19, you see something that is going to happen throughout the rebuilding process. In verse 19, you see that there is opposition. But when that opposition comes, Nehemiah says, verse 20, to the to those opposing them and, and to the people to remind them, he says, this is God's work. He will enable us and give us success. Now, chapter 3, and we're not going to read chapter 3, and you'll see why in just a moment. Chapter 3 is just an actual record of the rebuilding. And unless you're very familiar with the layout of Jerusalem and the walls and gates, it would sound kind of boring and, and technical, but basically chapter 3 is a record of who rebuilt what section of the wall. It describes the location of their work. It tells what they did, whether it was building the wall or, or building gates. And it also tells who was working next to them. What you do see in chapter 3 in the very beginning is the very first mention, the first group mentioned is Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priest. And it says they went to work rebuilding the sheep gate, which they dedicated and set in place. And then they built the wall all the way to the Tower of Hananel. That was a distance of about 100 feet. Now, what's significant about those priests being involved in the work? What's significant is that typically priests did not do manual labor. And I think the reason Nehemiah points the priest out first is to remind us this is not just building a physical wall. This is more than physical construction. It's, it's a spiritual work. And as we said last week, in our world, there's a lot of brokenness, and you can see it in physical symptoms, but we need to be careful not to just look at, not to address the physical symptoms, but to recognize the brokenness that we see physically is due to something much deeper. It's rooted in spiritual brokenness. Now, notice the first thing the priest did was to repair the sheep gate. Now, you could probably figure this out if you know about the Old Testament sacrificial system. The sheep gate is where they brought in the sacrifices to the temple. So the first order of business was to restore proper relationship with God and proper worship of God. And I mentioned to that, that to you this morning to say that is certainly true when you come to faith. It's a reconciliation process where you are brought back into what God created you for, proper relation with him, and you're brought to a place of proper worship. You can't proper, properly worship if you don't know him. But I also need to say to you this morning, that same order of business is true when you've grown cold in your faith. If you're a believer, but you're currently distant from the Lord, you, you may not feel like, you may not be excited about fasting and praying and seeking him for 40 days, but I'm going to tell you, if you'll set aside what you feel like, knowing you can't trust your feelings, you will discover the truth of his promise that those who diligently seek him will be found by him. Those who diligently seek him will be rewarded by him. You've got to return to a proper relationship and proper worship. Well, throughout chapter 3, here's what you see. You see a lot of names and families and, and relationships, but there's only one phrase I really need you to remember in chapter 3. 
It's in there at least 30 times. At least 30 times through chapter 3, you'll see the phrase or the words, next to him or next to them. That's how the vision was carried out. Nehemiah had a God-sized task that he couldn't do by himself. He had a God-sized task that he and the, and the leaders he brought around himself couldn't accomplish. But the vision God gave Nehemiah was not for Nehemiah alone. The vision that God gave Nehemiah was more than just what he could do. God had given him a vision to rebuild, and the vision to rebuild included a plan that would involve the people. It would involve all of the people. If you, if you read through the list of those involved in chapter 3, you see a variety. You see a lot of different segments of the population. We've already mentioned the, the priests who were involved. You see the Tekoites. Those were a group of people who lived outside of Jerusalem. There were goldsmiths involved. There's a perfume maker. There were governors of different districts. One of the governors, Shalom, even brought his daughters to the work. And they worked with him to complete a section of the wall. There were Levites involved in the work. Who were the Levites? Well, they were people who served in the temple. They were worship pastors. They even got dirty and sweaty. I've been with John before and seen him get dirty and sweaty. I'm not picking on him. But even the worship pastors were involved in the work. The merchants were involved in the work. What am I saying to you? It was a collaborative effort. It was a collaborative effort. Over 40 different groups of people from all walks of life serving side by side, cooperating to see the vision that God had given accomplish. It was a God-sized vision. They couldn't do it on their own, but they all, they all came together. And because of their willingness to step out in faith, because of their willingness to, to partner in the vision, the blessing of God was upon them. They literally experienced a miracle. What is a miracle? It's a, mir- a miracle is something that can only be explained by the hand of God. If you hold your finger there in chapter 3 and turn over a page or two to chapter 6, this was the end result. Chapter 6 Verses 15 and 16. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. Listen, that's an impossibility. That's an absolute impossibility. They didn't have machinery. They didn't have engineers. Nehemiah didn't have the skill to go in and lead the rebuilding of the wall. This was all the hand of God. And in just 52 days with manual labor, they rebuilt the wall. Look at verse 16. When our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and felt greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. How cool would it be for people around us, people who aren't church, people who don't have a very favorable opinion of God to see something going on and say, clearly, God did that. That's what they experienced because they were willing to be involved. Can can you imagine what it was like to be a part of something that God-sized? But there's a sad note in chapter 3. Look at verse 5. Next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. There's a group that chose not to be involved. Maybe they didn't agree with the vision. They didn't trust the, the Nehemiah's leadership from God. Maybe, maybe they just didn't want to get dirty. Maybe they felt like it was below them. It says they were nobles. Maybe they felt like they were better than the common man. They didn't want to mingle or, or, or work alongside or, or sweat with the common people. 
Maybe they thought the vision was, was frivolous and pointless. They didn't believe it could really be accomplished. But whatever the reason, you have to wonder how they felt after the wall was completed. Can you imagine the joy and the celebration and the stories and the backslapping and the high fives? But they missed it. Listen, don't miss out. Don't miss out. This past Monday in our staff meeting, Pastor Jason always gives me the opportunity at the end to say whatever I want to say, and I usually will share some scripture or whatever. But, you know, this week, talking about all that God is doing and stirring, I simply said three words to our staff. Don't miss Well, I jumped ahead to the end of the story there in chapter 6. Let's go back and fill in. I I don't want to give the impression that accomplishing the vision God calls us to is a cakewalk. I I don't want to give the impression there are are no challenges. In in chapter 4, and we saw in chapter 2 the opposition, chapter 4 of Nehemiah, we see that there were difficulties, there were challenges to the step of faith, as there should be. Now, Now, you might just say to yourself, what did he just say? Yes, there should be challenges to a step of faith true faith is tested faith anything God calls us to do if it's really going to require faith if we can't do it on our own it's going to be tested God is going to see if we're really trusting him for the vision and that's what happened when when we're walking with the Lord when we're attempting to fulfill the vision he's given us there'll be challenges and difficulties and 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 hurdles that we have to overcome and and you could title chapter 4 Here comes trouble. Look at verses 1 through 3. When Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, if a fox climbs on top, he will break down their stone wall. So Samballad is saying to the Jews, you, you guys are too feeble. You, you got nothing. Of course, the enemy never sees the spiritual resources that we have. It's good when we're feeble because God, Scripture says, God delights in using the feeble. He delights in using the foolish and the weak to confound the wise, to get his work accomplished. When, when we're weak, he's strong. Sanballat says, look, your your work is worthless. You're wasting your time. You're not going to be able to restore the walls to protect yourselves. And look, you people make all these sacrifices, and you pray, and you worship your God. He can't help you. Will they finish in a day? He's not talking about a literal day. He's saying you're not ever going to finish. You can't revive the stones, the heaps of rubbish. You don't have any idea what you're doing. You don't know what you've gotten into. Tobias says a fox could knock down what you're building. You know, the reality is Sanballat and Tobiah were absolutely correct from a human perspective. This Jewish remnant is, is weak. They're poor, humanly speaking. They're, they're not up to the task. The work is greater than them. But whose project is this? This is not their project. God has called them to this task. 
Chapter 31 reveals that there are 41 different sections being worked on. And the key to them surviving and accomplishing the task was the unity. The unity was the success in their building. If Sam Ballot and Tobiah, in speaking these words, if they could have just demoralized one or two units, it would have been a domino effect. But, but what you see over and over in the building of the wall is together, together, together. Nehemiah doesn't even take any time to respond to the enemy. He simply prays. Look at verses 4 through 6 of chapter 4. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads. Give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Verse 6, so we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Now, Nehemiah looks like in that prayer he's a, he's a vengeful leader. He wants his enemies crushed and destroyed. But before you think Nehemiah is a vengeful leader, before you think he's trying to make a name for himself, notice in his prayer his ultimate objective is asking God to vindicate himself. Nehemiah wants to be sure that God's name is glorified. Nehemiah and the people are trying to be faithful to what God has called them to. And if they fail to finish the task, if they, if, if they don't complete the wall, they leave the people of Jerusalem in shame, that would bring God's name into disrepute because these are his people. All the enemy nations would say, well, God doesn't care. God didn't do anything for them. And so that's what his prayer is about. He's asking God to protect his own reputation. Look at verse 6. After those incredibly discouraging words, remember the first thing did Nehemiah was prayed, and the people heard that prayer. Verse 6 says, the resolve is still strong. The wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Nehemiah just calling on God brought encouragement to the people. So they're encouraged, and to the, complete the wall all the way around to half its height, so of course, Satan has his minions double down on them. You see in verses 7 and 8, there are four different groups that were joining together, threatening to fight against the workers. And look at verse 9, Nehemiah's response. Once again, we prayed to our God and set a guard. And that's a common theme all through Nehemiah. They, they prayed and prepared. They prayed and worked. They prayed and defended. And what you see happening here in the lives of the people is, is what happens in our lives when we're serving God and we're following his plan and purpose. It shouldn't surprise us that Satan always opposes the work of God. Always. And because we understand that, we need to understand that we should never underestimate the importance of prayer. Never underestimate the importance of prayer, not in the planning process, not in carrying out the task. We can never underestimate the importance of prayer. Nehemiah prayed, and then he set a guard. The urgency of the need shouldn't eliminate taking time to pray. Nehemiah didn't first set a guard and try to figure out all the, no. First he prayed, and then he set a guard. You see, we get, we get confused sometimes. We think that the work is the real activity, and prayer is just an auxiliary or supplemental effort. No, Prayer is the work. Prayer prepares us. Prayer directs us in the work. Prayer's the work. 
But make sure you note that prayer is not a substitute for action and duty. I think more often than not, we err on the side of rushing into the work, doing what we know to do. But on the other hand, there are occasions where we we know what the work is, but we don't want to do the work, so we think it's okay just to pray. Evangelism, sharing our faith is one of those works, isn't it? It's hard. It's scary. We, We don't feel competent. So we're, we're burdened for the loss, so God, we'll, we'll pray for the loss, but God, please don't make us go dig around in the rubble. They prayed, they prepared, and then they set themselves to the task. Chapter 4, verse 10, there, there's another attack, more opposition from yet a different front, and this time it's actually from within the camp. Look at verse 10. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And, and the, the picture there, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. In, in, in the Hebrew, it's a picture of a man who's giving way. He, he's been stumbling and, and staggering under a heavy load, and he's, he's giving way. He's beginning to fall. So they've had this tremendous pressure from without, and now it's causing problems within. Discouragement is one of Satan's greatest weapons. But understand this, we are not able is a very natural response when we take our eyes off the Lord. Think about the Israelites not entering the promised land. Why did they not enter? Joshua and Caleb said, we can. God has given it. God will bless us. We can. Tim said, we can't. The people grumbled. They, they, they mutinied. They didn't go into the promised land because their eyes were not on the Lord and his promise. Their eyes were on what? They were on the giants. We are not able is a natural response when we take our eyes off the Lord. It's what happened to Peter when he began to sink out there walking on the water. Scripture clearly says his eyes were on the waves, not on the Lord. So, so if we look at ourselves and look at our problems and count on our own abilities, we're going to diminish our faith. That's going to stop the work of God in us and, and through us. Verse 12, there's, there's more discouragement. Some of the Jews were frightened. They wanted them to stop the work. They said, look, our enemies are going to attack us from every direction when we, we don't even know where they're coming from. Nehemiah does what is practical. He posts guards, and he tells them to carry not only their tools but weapons and be constantly vigilant. But, but more important than all those precautions was verse 14 when he reminded them, Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. What is he saying? Put your eyes on the Lord. Stop looking at your enemies. Stop looking at the rubble. Stop saying, we aren't able. Put your eyes on the Lord. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Listen, anytime we do something significant for the kingdom, we have to expect the forces of evil to come against us, to attempt to discourage us and attempt to defeat us. We have to remember, and if you've been doing the devotions, and I hope you're, you're doing those so we're all doing this together, we have to remember what we studied this week from Ephesians 6. The battle is not physical, is it? It's spiritual. 
Well, if it's a spiritual battle, if the flesh and blood battle, spiritual battles require spiritual weapons. Prayer is the weapon. Would you say that with me? Prayer is the weapon. If you're in a spiritual battle, if we're in a spiritual battle, it's got to come back to spiritual weapons, and prayer's the weapons. When we're facing obstacles, when, whether it's individual or corporately, the first thing we need to do is to, to pray. That's why we're spending the next 40 days praying for guidance. What, what are we doing? We're, we're building our prayer muscle. As we spend 40 days in, in fasting and in prayer and, and build our prayer muscle, we're preparing ourselves for any opposition that we might face as we follow and as we obey the Lord, both individually and corporately. We get strong over the next 40 days. You know, and as we pray, we also need to remember God's call on us. Nehemiah knew this venture was from the Lord. You don't, you don't see him panicking anywhere through this process. Because he knew the vision was God's. He knew rebuilding the wall was on God's heart. He had seen God's providence even before he left Jerusalem, and he remembered what God has done. That's why he had no doubt that God would see them through. If we're going to fulfill the plans and purposes God has for us as the body we call Geyer Springs Baptist Church, it's going to necessitate a collaborative effort. It's going to require cooperation of everyone we are called, and we are called together. It's the church together. That's what this month is about, together. The unity of the body. If we're going to fulfill the vision of God, we have to remember that we're called together. And when we fulfill the mission that he has for us, his name becomes known. And glory is brought to him. And people come to faith. Don't miss out. Don't miss out. Imagine the joy when they completed the task that God had for them. The joy of all the people and seeing what God had done. Not, not glorying in themselves, but seeing how great their God was. But there was one group that had nothing to rejoice about. They weren't part of it. Don't miss out out. Bow with me this morning. We always need to pause and think about what God has said. And I don't want you to think about what God has said to the church or to other people. I want you to think about what God has said to you personally. The Holy Spirit of God, if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit of God who indwells you will speak to your heart and your point of need. That same Holy Spirit, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, he will speak to your heart. He's going to call you to relationship with the Lord. You know, and that's the first point of application anytime we gather. There are people in this room who have yet to surrender their lives to Christ. You may have gone to church all your life. You may have said some words as a child, not really meant them, not understood them. You may have gotten dunked in a baptistry. But you know, the 
Holy Spirit's been dealing with you as he has so many others through these days. You know you've not surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ. What are you waiting for? I want to tell you, around here, the invitations open the entire service. If I'm in the middle of a message and the Holy Spirit of God is convicting you, you get up and you come and one of our pastors will meet you. Talk about missing out. Can you imagine missing out on eternity? The joy, the celebration, being in the presence of God, which is what you were made for for all of eternity. Can you imagine missing out and spending eternity in torment in a very real place called hell because you were worried about what people think? Spirit of God is dealing with you about salvation, about surrender. Maybe the Spirit of God is dealing with you about the fact that you have professed faith in Christ, but you've not been willing to follow him in baptism. Are you ashamed of him? He said, if you're ashamed of him, he'll be ashamed of you before the Father. What a great season in the life of our church for you to get that settled. I'll be down front during our response time. Pastor Casey will be down on the front. Pastors will be in the lobby as you leave. Make sure you've settled your relationship with Christ. Those of you here that know the Lord might need to ask the question about whether or not you, you've grown cold. You've gotten discouraged. Are you committed to God's purpose for your life? Maybe there's been all kinds of opposition thrown your way. But he who called you is faithful. Don't turn your back on him. He's the only one who can get you through. committed to God's purpose for this church, whatever he calls us to. We've got to pray. We've got to seek him diligently. Spirit of God, speak. Help us tune our ear to what you have to say. And before we even know what you would say to us, may the attitude of our heart, may our answer be yes. Yes.